Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Please give a warm welcome to Angela Smith. She is a researcher, a writer, a remote viewer, and gives remote viewing training courses. She is trained with the best. She formerly worked for Robert Bigelow in research. She has published four books, Remote Perceptions, Diary of an Abduction, Shire, and River of Passion. She is a life coach and a shamanic practitioner in Boulder City, Nevada. And she's currently working on a novel based on her early years working in Columbia, as well as a new assessment tool that measures intuition. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Angela Thompson-Smith to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. What a background, my God. What haven't you done? <laughs> I've tried to take opportunities when they arrive, uh, training and uh, new experiences, and I found them each one at the time when I take the training or I take I follow the the path. I'm not sure where it's leading, but everything that I've done during my lifetime has been part of a whole plan. I mean, it's just worked out beautifully. Now you're from England, aren't you? Originally, I've been over here in the States 30 years. You have a beautiful accent. What part of England are you from? Uh, the West Country, Bristol's my hometown. Do you miss it? Um, I've been back and it's always there. I keep in touch with the, the village, Shire. <laughs> <laughs> you have trained with the best in remote viewing, the original Stargate project team. Right. Uh, trained initially with Paul Smith in... Uh, the uh, the first phases, the first stages of uh, controlled remote viewing. Uh, went on to train then with uh, Lynn Buchanan and have been back since with Paul for refresher courses. And a uh, very different approach to training uh, terminologies, but both excellent teachers. Do you think that remote viewing as a tool now that beginners would be really able to do something different with their lives aside from just increase their intuition? Do you think that extended remote viewing could be practical for newbies? I think uh, I just have to clarify something. Remote viewing doesn't make you more intuitive. It works with the intuitive level that you already, already have, but facilitates how you are able to use it. And I think ERV, the extended remote viewing, which relies more on an altered state, uh, anybody can do that. And it certainly opens people up to becoming more able to use their intuition. Controlled remote viewing is a little bit more sequential and ordered, but I've seen some wonderful results from people just coming to do the, the first stages. Now, you teach remote viewing, don't you? I do, yes. I have classes here in Boulder City. Um, over Skype, and I also travel to other locations. Have you been contracted to do the remote viewing, not just to teach it, but to do it for others? Absolutely. I've worked uh, for one client, a business client. I can't name names or any of the details, but I've worked for him now for um, going on eight years. And uh, so we've done a lot of business-related work as well as uh, personal ventures for him and uh, for an amazing amount of clients over the years. 
Can you talk a little bit about the applications that you can be called upon to work on? What would a client call you to do, for example? Right. Part of what I do is some humanitarian work. And for example, when I was teaching in Scotland, we got a call from one of my colleagues that there was a missing girl in Salt Lake City, young girl. And it was an urgent case. We weren't given any other information. I gave that what they call a tasking to my advanced viewers that I were I was training, and uh, they came up with a lot of information. I emailed it back to my colleague. Um, he added that into the database. Emailed me again for some clarification, which I got from the viewers. Sent that back, and. Uh, the information that the viewers got, including uh, my students, was enough because it was given to the parents. It was enough that from that data, they could tell who she was with, where she was, uh, what was happening, and they were able to go and collect her and take her home. That's really powerful. That's a, It's an amazing thing when that happens. It's such a validation. And yet it's not anything related to being psychic, is it? Well, or is it? Psychic and intuitive are used interchangeably. Psychic is sort of an older term that has a lot of negative connotations. Yeah. You know, storefront psychic. Um, whereas I like to think of it as intuitive because everybody's intuitive. So how many people would you say call you weekly to find money for them or to find minerals or to locate business acquisition or some type of accumulation of wealth and prosperity? Um, people don't task me to find money. <laughs> they will they will task me on perhaps a business proposition that will be beneficial for them. Or for example, the work I did with John Lear, he'd asked me to look at a potential um, gold mine that he was working on. Um, and I, I tell people some weeks I'm working hard and some weeks I'm hardly working. It varies from week to week. But I would say you know, on an average week, um, maybe four or five projects that come in. That's a lot. Yeah, and it varies. And uh, some of them are humanitarian. Some of them are fee-paying. Have you ever had people ask you to find the right location for their next part of their life? That comes more under the life coaching. So I, I try and include remote viewing under life coaching and um, try and and actually have the individual because life coaching doesn't provide answers to the client that it, Correct. but I can help them look at alternatives and let them use their own intuition to decide where they where they're going to go next. But in your life coaching, let's say they have a sense of what locations they're resonating to. For example, right now there's a lot of people who are getting this hunch that they're to move. Like, mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many people I talk to. They have this hunch that they're supposed to move and they want to move and they're done with where they are. Yeah. But they don't have the sense. They have areas of interest, but they don't have the sense exactly where they're supposed to be or where they would be prospering in this next part of their life. Yeah. What I do with clients, I do some brainstorming with them. Um, we do a little bit of um, aptitude testing, vocational testing, interests, um, look at some of the um, things they've done in the past. And um, they write down lists of things that they would like to do. And from that, we can come to some thin synthesis of uh, potential futures, potential paths that they can take. Then it's up to the client to decide. 
And that's a totally different dynamic and process than remote viewing. It is, although my intuitive sense and I think the clients as well comes into play. Do you ever work with your clients to help them meditate or to become quiet in order to get information? Um, only if the client comes to me and I, I know that they're um, comfortable with that. Most of the clients that come to me um, or if I work with them over phone or internet um, are regular folks from out in the world who don't meditate. They are not interested in metaphysics. So I, I don't do that with them. Um, basically, they come in, they come in with a frown on their face and we start talking. And during the process of talking and doing some of the assessments, then I think their stress level does go down. Do you get flashes when people are talking to you? Very often. Very often. Is it imagery? Is it sensory? Is it words that come into you when you're listening to someone's voice? Um, in my case, I'm a very visual person. I can visualize very easily. So it's often in the form of pictures, sometimes just a feeling, just a, a knowing, a knowledge. So you're highly intuitive I yourself. Think I <laughs> yeah, I think I always have been. I had out-of-body experiences since I was a kid. And um, a lot of, I think a lot of children have out-of-body experiences, but they lose the ability or they submerge it as they, they grow up. But I was able to keep the ability. So I think I am quite intuitive. When you say out-of-body experiences, what do you mean? I mean, I have a sense of what you're talking about, but what do you mean? Describe it. Uh, as a kid, I would be put to bed and I would still be awake and I would wander around. I would go up on the rooftops and wander around and visit people. And, um, and when I told my parents, of course, they said, oh, well, it's all imagination, it's all dreams. But I knew I was still awake. So in my 20s, I linked up with a group that uh, at Manchester University in England that were studying this and um, was able to carry out some of my own experiments to prove that I, I really could perceive um, events, people, locations at a distance and be fairly accurate. Um, Out-of-body experience is basically perceiving another location external to where you are um, with something other than your known five senses. It sounds like you're the perfect instrument to be not only doing remote viewing, but the other work that you're doing as well. I think I found a happy place. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also trained at the Monroe Institute and got a background in the Gateway. Talk about that for a moment. Um, I had wanted to go to the Monroe Institute in, in Virginia for a long time. And then back in the early 1990s, I had that opportunity. They had some offers, uh, which I couldn't refuse <laughs> for the Gateway program. So I went out and spent a week with a group of other explorers. And um, at the Institute, you go through a series of listening to different tones over headphones. And they have something called the uh, binaural beat where one tone is played to one ear, one tone to the other, and it creates a separate tone that allows you to enter different states of consciousness. And um, they have different phases, different uh, stages of these. It was amazing because I was able to put names to consciousness states that I had been in before, as well as experiencing a lot of new ones. Have you been back? No, I want to. <laughs> Did you meet Robert Monroe? 
No, he passed on by the time that I got there. Wasn't he a fascinating guy? Amazing man, yes. Very much a visionary. I'll bet he's having a great time where he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Other people have claimed to have seen him and his wife um, still around there. Really? Mm-hmm. He was so articulate and passionate and committed to exploration and discovery, the real true exploration and discovery. Right. Yep. Talk a little bit about what prompted you to begin writing. Oh, gosh. I've always wanted to write. I've always been a writer from a kid writing poetry and short stories um, in my 20s, I had some short stories published in local magazines in England, but it wasn't until I came to the States that I really felt that I wanted to write in more depth. So in the early 1990s, I decided I wanted to write about the OBE experience and remote viewing and was very fortunate to um, get a book contract with Hampton Roads Publishing Company in Virginia and uh, wrote remote perceptions and uh, was able to document some of my own experiences plus write about the remote viewing field and the new public awareness that was coming about in RV. Do you think that RV will become, let's say in 10 years, more commonplace and people accept that time is not what we understand it to be? Very slowly. Um, all of the metaphysical abilities that people have, I mean, everybody has these abilities, but in the current mindset we have here in the States, they're very much ridiculed and relegated to fringe science. It's going to take a major paradigm shift, some, some shift in consciousness uh, for it to change. So I think the next 10 years is still going to be a battle. What about 25 years? 25, perhaps. Yes. I think there's, there's a possibility there. Don't you think on some level that when people around the world and the consciousness changes about what time is and isn't, mm -hmm. particularly what it isn't. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when that happens, don't you think that there will be a synchronistic chain of events that will also click in about who we are and who we're not? Right, I think so. Now with the, you know, with the new new physics, with uh, the more information and more interest in the quantum field, zero point energy, um, Lynn McTaggart's work uh, documenting all of these uh, interesting topics. I think it, that's going to come to a point where more people are going to be educated in what time is and isn't, and uh, it's going to have people thinking. Um, but again, it's going to be a major paradigm shift and, uh, it's, I think people are going to be taken for a loop because they've become very established in what time is and, um, don't even think about what it isn't. A certain degree of human suffering is connected with what we're getting done by certain times. Don't you think that many more souls and beings would not suffer so much if our relationship with time would undergo some type of paradigm shift. Right. I, I, I see this a lot. I've worked with uh, seniors here in Boulder City. I was director of the Senior Center for a couple of years, and um, I found there is a great fear of death. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that this life is just part of the continuum that we, we carry on. 
and uh, it's not always what people expect from what they're taught in uh, church and uh, school. And I think if the paradigm shifted, there would be less fear about death, about that it's not a full stop. It's not uh, you don't come to the end and then nothing or you, you're up in the clouds with, with lutes and lyres. Um, so, yeah, I think so, because I, I know I have no fear of death. I know this is just going to be the next big adventure. And I hope I live till I'm an old, old lady, but there's no fear. How does your shamanic work connect in with your work as a life coach, yourself as a remote viewer, your work with runes? What is your shamanic practitioner work exactly? Uh, the shamanic practitioner work has added a, added a whole new dimension to what I do. I've always been interested in alternative dimensions. Uh, as a kid, you know, growing up in the Celtic parts of Britain, I uh, was very aware of um, the traditions and the, the practices of uh, pre-Christian civilizations. Always had a fascination with that reading the runes, uh, getting involved with that tradition. And recently I've been training with uh, Hank Wesselman and Jill Kukendall, uh, vision seekers, and it's opened up a whole new way of seeing the world and other worlds. Um, for example, uh, I'd always, in remote viewing, I'd always stayed in this dimension, past, present and future. With shamanic work, you have every other dimension open to you, which is, it's wonderful. What other dimensions do you mean? With shamanic work, there are some shamans who work with the lower uh, dimensions. Uh, with Hank Wesselman, we're talking about now the higher dimensions, our higher self, our uh, spirit families, our guides. And um, I'd always felt I was on my own in my decision making. Now I can call on if I have a, for example, um, I had a situation the other day. I was on the bus. A homeless person was haranguing the bus driver and a, a young couple had got on the bus. And I thought there must be some way to help resolve this, even though I shouldn't have got involved. So I called on one of my spirit helpers who is bear, bear spirit. And I, I said, bear spirit, can you provide a way to help this man, uh, this homeless man, resolve his problem and help the situation. And um, before I knew it, he was um, walking off the bus and I had asked, you know, for him to help, have help with providing him with uh, somewhere to go, some a place to eat, etc. So he was just off the bus very quietly. And um, so little things like that, you know, the shaman works in healing work, um, interventions in, in the community, and basically tries to help their community. That's fantastic. It would seem also like shamanic work is something that the shaman in oneself emerges and gets strengthened and then naturally facilitates that which they're called to facilitate around them. Am I correct? I think the second one where the shaman emerges and becomes stronger. Okay. Because I've always had that shamanic interest and leaning, but I really hadn't uh, manifested it or worked with it at all until recently. Talk a little bit about your recent books, Shire. Just give us a little background on what it's about and River of Passion, the newer book. Right. Those were fun to write. Um, 
I first of all started off writing River of Passion, which was my last book, which is a historical novel. It uh, takes place in the village of Sherhampton, where I grew up in England. Very ancient place. And um, each chapter is a different era of history, a different story. I did a huge amount of uh, historical research for it. And then I remote viewed the stories. I went back in time and looked at that time with with uh, my inner eye and found a story. So each of the chapters is a standalone story in different eras leading up to the present and a little bit into the future. And Shire is a little book of reminiscences that came out of writing River of Passion because as I was writing River, these remembrances would come up of uh, the village when I was growing up in the 50s. And um, so I wrote those down and the the publisher, Publish America, uh, took both of them. Oh, interesting. So remote viewing has been very good to you. <laughs> it has. Um, it's been an amazing journey. And uh, it's not been an easy journey um, because there's been a lot of fits and starts, <laughs> you know, finding which path I'm supposed to take. But I, I feel I'm on the right path now. How come it is that in remote viewing, you can go back into the past, you can remote view the fairly close present, and you can remote view into the future? Now, I know that most people don't talk about remote viewing into the future, and very few people have really touched upon that. But I wonder what your take is on that. I feel that, um, like I know Paul Smith has talked about this, the um, future events, the nearer the future event is to when you remote view it, the more likely it is to be correct. Uh, the further away from when you're viewing um, way into the future then it's less likely to be correct. And I think that's due to something called the alternative futures problem, that every single decision we make sets us off on a different path into the future. So, you know, just deciding this moment to do this diverts you. Um, however, there in, in quantum physics, there's the phenomena of the particle and the wave. Every wave is constructed of particles. Um, and in viewing a particular future, you collapse the wave. You make it more likely to happen. That's that's my feeling. I've had uh, remote viewings um, validated after eight years, 11 years. Uh, the rings of Saturn, I remote viewed uh, about 94. And recently, the Cassini probe reached uh, the rings of Saturn. And uh, a lot of what I had perceived was validated by the data sent back by the Cassini probe. So you have the capability to remote view at least 10 years into the future. I think so. Um, I'm not always correct. I'm, I'm not 100%. Um, I've tested out about 75, 78%. That's still very good. It's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. good. And now I have to ask you the tough questions about the next few years. Mm. Now, I cannot imagine that somebody with your abilities, your skills, your gifts, and your interests hasn't looked and remote viewed into the next few years. Have you? I have. In fact, I've had clients that have asked me to do that for them. And um, I see the next few years as still very much of what we're going through now. In fact, even deepening, which is not a good picture. 
but it brings us back to simpler times. Um, during the 1950s, people lived a lot simpler, simpler lives. And that's part of my credo now is simple living. I'm trying to center my life around simple living. And um, so there are good things that come out of it, but I think there's still going to be a huge struggle for, for folks. I mean, the whole world is in chaos, and I don't think it's going to get any better soon. When I asked Lynn Buchanan in an interview we did last year mm. what he saw within 10 years, how society looked, he said that he saw in his remote viewing work the return to an agrarian society. Now, that's profound. That was his take. But people, I'm sure, will see different things because, you know, there's millions and billions of us that are going to make different decisions every day. But what do you think about that? I feel it's in some some communities, yes. Um, there, are, there are communities now that are turning green. They're trying, despite all of the restrictions that are being put on green living, uh, particularly in this country, there will be more and more communities going green and becoming self-sufficient. Um, I think there will be a, a trend towards group living, um, it has to happen. People are losing their jobs, losing their um, homes. And I feel that in within the next five to 10 years, there will be more clustering of families living together, clusters of people living together, rather than the independent living that a lot of us enjoy. Does it concern you? You have mixed feelings about it? Well, I like my independence. <laughs> I like living, you know, having my own life and my own decisions. But I've also lived in group settings and that appeals to me. I like to be part of a community, part of a team. And um, so I think I could adapt. I could uh, adjust to that. When you say you've lived in group settings in England or other places? Um, in England, in basically in college and uh, in group houses with, with others. What brought you to Boulder, Boulder um, City? Boulder City, Nevada is a, a quaint little community, a real nice little community, a uh, little bit like Mayberry. You, you come, <laughs> over, <laughs> come through the hills, through the pass, and you, you're back in Mayberry. Um, it's a nice community. I was living back east for 11 years in New Jersey, then 10 years in Las Vegas where I was uh, married. And when I got divorced, I wanted somewhere safe uh, for a single woman to live. And I'd been out to Boulder City a few times, really liked it. A lot of community activities here. And so that was my choice. Uh, I did go back to England for six months a few years ago to see if I wanted to live back there. But it was too cold and too wet and too too damp. And um, I came back. I had a conversation when I was out in Nevada a few days ago with John Lear and one of the things he said is that he felt that we don't really have the free will we think we do. We're given that impression, but it's not really true. What's your take on free will? If you talk to astrologers who say that everything is predetermined, they can look at the date and time we were born and they can predict when things happen. I think there's a template in place. Um, I am not an astrologer, but uh I realize that there are certain conditions, certain factors that are in place. But within that, I think we have free will. We have free choice. 
So it's a bit of both. I can't come down at either side strongly that it's all free will or it's all preordained. Yeah, I think it's mixed too. Yeah. I do. It feels like it's mixed. Even why we step to the right, why we do something at a certain time. There are other people that have said they think that free will is given to us as an option we energetically think we have. But in reality, our energy, our consciousness, and our blueprint for life is definitely leading us in a particular way, whether we acknowledge it or not. And that's kind of interesting, too. Yeah. In the shamanic tradition, uh, there is a, a belief that before birth, we we enter into a contract of sorts to be born into a certain family, to cer- learn certain lessons, uh, to carry out certain um, acts. And um, I kind of like that idea, but I also like the the option that we have to make choices. Absolutely. Absolutely. What has been the most complex challenge that you've had up to this point in your life? Oh, wow. There have been many. (laughs) Well, whatever you're comfortable to share. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most challenging times of my life was back in um, my 20s when I decided to go abroad and work with a voluntary organization in Colombia. Um, working at an orphanage with uh, with babies, that was a huge challenge. And um, I was working with missionaries, and I wasn't particularly religious, so that was interesting. And um, <laughs> I noticed the interesting. <laughs> there lies the challenge. <laughs> There's the challenge, and uh, it, but it was an amazing experience. Um, we had these little babies come in that had been abandoned. Some of them skeletons. One one baby that came in was um, he was eighteen months old, but he'd been looked after in a girls' reformatory school, just basically warehoused. This child was skin and bone, full of infections, infestations. He couldn't even sit up. Couldn't even raise his head off the bed. Uh, all he could say was "dada." He had one tooth, and um, he was written off as mentally retarded. Uh, Nothing, he could never do anything. But I saw the light in this child's eyes and I said, okay, I'm going to work with this kid. (laughs) We got him to the point where he was walking, talking, emotional, great sense of humor in this kid. He got, became adopted uh, by an American family. He's now um, actually um, been out in Iraq. Um, He's in the military, which um, is his choice. And uh, an amazing young man. How beautiful. Yeah. So there were challenges with some wonderful outcomes. One of the things that I've noticed in my life is that all of the good works require a commitment, a passion, a connection, but also at a certain point, good works that expand also require funding. I would think that people would be calling you all the time to help them find suitable funding, the funding sources, whether it's methods, whether it's investments, or whether it's actually funding sources, people and groups that will fund whatever it is that they're up to. I know that there are people who want to provide orphanages around the world that need funding, not only the physical types of support, but funding. Could you help with that? I have done. Um, 
not so much with funding orphanages, but uh, for my my main client, I've done a lot of work in that respect. Um, for example, when he was selling his business, um, helping him to ascertain um, the best routes that he could take, the best people to work with. And um, I work partially what's called front-loaded uh, when I do my applications work. In remote viewing, there's the idea that you have the viewer has to work completely blind, which means they have no upfront information. And I have worked in that respect. But in when you're working applications, sometimes you have to have a certain direction in which to go. And Lynn Buchanan, I'm sure, has talked about that. Um, so with my client, I've been able to help him uh, locate funding, locate um, potential buyers for his business. And also recently, I had uh, a researcher email me and um, not so much remote viewing, but uh, just straightforward research, knowledge, finding some funders for some uh, parapsychological research he was carrying out. That's fantastic. In the world that we live in today, there's a big change with regard to the structures in which people fund their organizations. And with the tax laws changing and different jurisdictions are changing, I believe that there are still certain jurisdictions that are better suited for different endeavors that will provide a better, more suited structure for what people want to do legally. And mm -hmm. so I think that one of the applications that would be really helpful, I think, to remote view is when somebody comes to you with a project to be able to remote view how it should be structured. You know, let me give you an example yeah. and the kind of legality that's involved. This may not be immediately applicable, but it's an example. When Muhammad Yunus formed the Grameen Bank in Dhaka, Bangladesh, he went to the Bank of Bangladesh and the government got involved in funding that organization. Well, this was about providing credit to people that didn't fit the traditional criteria of credit, uncollateralized lending. Mm -hmm. And he visioned and built and inspired a, not only a new organization, but a new organism of consciousness, protocol, process, way of doing business and thinking about credit for the poor and made things possible that nobody else in banking in the history of the world has ever done as we know it. Last week, Muhammad Yunus was removed from his own banking system for mm. political reasons. And I was on a conference call with the Grameen Foundation a few weeks ago before the final decision was made. And the question I asked was, where was legal counsel at coming up with the structure of this? How come he was in a position to be removed? The man never did anything wrong to be treated that way. How come he was set up in a position like that? And when it really came down to it, it was about the structure of the agreement between him and the people that removed him. Yeah. And so it reminds me that in the formation of new ventures, there's consciousness in structure, and that is animate, and it lives and breathes as the ground in which everything then is going to come. Well, they waited till he built everything into billions of dollars and then removed him. This is a guy who barely took a salary, lives in a little apartment in the Grameen building, 
You know, he's kind of like Gandhi in banking. So one of the things I think is going to be very pertinent for people that have socially beneficial projects that they want to be successful and are guided to do that is to be able to call upon a remote viewing practitioner like yourself to help with some of that. Those early beginnings create the frequency and the consciousness and tell a tale of what could happen later. The thing is that most people look at the legal and structuring side is just a part of the business stuff. Like it's a big deal, but it's not that big a deal, but it is a big deal. Yeah. My take on that is in going into any venture and either into straight business or into remote viewing, you have to use both sides of the brain. You have to use your left brain and right brain to be simplistic. You have to be intuitive. You have to be creative and, um, able to see out of the box, but you also have to use your common sense. You have to use um, logic. So we're given, you know, we're given a brain. We're not just given an intuitive brain. We're also given a logical brain. And I really feel that both sides of a person needs to be brought into, into play. And it sounds like the people that set up the initial um, the example, you were, the structure you were talking about, um, we're very much into one mindset. And then the other mindset stepped in and said, okay, now we're going to run it this way. Every project needs to incorporate and to blend both sides. So you do need the logical uh, things of the world because you need to be aware you are going to live in the world. Um, but we also need to retain that intuitive, softer side of our, our psyches. What do you think about the fact that you've learned two different methodologies or translations of remote viewing from two totally different top-level people in the field? And how do you see the integration having learned remote viewing from two totally different people? Um, with the two teachers, uh, I learned many things from both of them. So I, I tend to stick with the original Ingo Swan terminology rather than shift around between them just to simply keep things simple. And also if I'm, I'm doing CRV for clients in the, out in the regular world, they know the CRV terminology and it's understandable to them. Um, Lynn's is less so, unfortunately. Um, but from Lynn, I learned a lot of um, alternative ways of doing RV that I, I, I often incorporate. And also I incorporate the extended remote viewing into my remote viewing practice. If I'm working a, a project totally blind, that's it. That is, I just get a coordinate, a series, like a case number, and I'm working totally blind. I will use CRV because that way there's no front interference, loading. no front loading, nothing. Um, you just get data. However, if I'm working for my, my main business client, I'll very often use the extended remote viewing because he'll have a specific question of something unknown that he needs to find out. So I will use the extended where I sit quietly, send my mind to the question and write down what I perceive. And um, so I incorporate, uh, there's a synthesis of all of the different methods that I've used, that I've learned. Do you see your shamanic work coming into play in any way when you personally are remote viewing? Or do you feel that that's kind of in the background? You're not activating that. You're doing something different. 
partly. Uh, partly is there in the background, but I do include for certain clients that I know are um, knowledgeable and accepting of the alternative traditions, I will bring in runes. I will use my rune stones and my, my remote viewing, uh, particularly if I'm doing CRV and uh, for my for um, certain clients. So the shamanic practice does is included at some level. Will you talk about what the runes are? The runes are an ancient tradition. They were actually, um, they're glyphs, a bit like, um, you know, the Egyptian glyphs, but these are from the northern hemispheres, Scandinavian, Germanic, Viking, uh, Celtic, European glyphs, uh, symbols that have certain meanings. They were used as an alphabet. They were also used as a pictorial language centuries ago, back in the, the dawn of civilizations. And um, they've, they were around, you go into the northern countries, you'll find them inscribed on stones and uh, gravestones. In the 17th century, there was a big interest in them to the point where they are now, you can, you can be trained in the interpretation of certain glyphs and certain signs. And um, I found them very, very helpful in that um, I feel there's part of me that understands them and they work well for me. I am not a tarot reader, I'm not a dowser, but I do read the runes and they have been very accurate for me. Where did you get your runes? Uh, the first set that I learned in England were the Saxon runes and I, I made my own set out of clay. Uh, I also trained with uh, PMH Atwater, Phyllis Atwater, the goddess runes, and we made runes in her workshop and I have a set of, that I made and uh, from natural stones that you, you draw on the, the symbols. And then I've also worked and also have the Ralph Blum sets. So I use them interchangeably. How interesting. Have you ever tied them into remote viewing or not really? Um, well, yes, when I'm um, because it uses the same intuitive sense. It's a. I think when you're reading the runes, it's a mix of psychokinesis, telepathy, uh, clairvoyance, a lot of the intuitive senses that come into play and uh, definitely fits in with remote viewing. You wrote a book called Diary of an Abduction in 2001. Right, right. What is that about? Um, Sadly, it's out of print now, but um, it's a book about some experiences I'd had as a, a child and young woman that tied in, resonated with what a lot of people were talking about, the alien abduction phenomenon. So what I wanted to do was to try and answer some questions for myself and for other people. So it in, it's in diary format. And um, I interviewed a whole bunch of people. I put some of my own experiences in. I went to conferences, read books, watched documentaries, and uh, documented all of this process uh, to the point where it didn't really answer any questions. It just brought up more questions. Maybe you were trained with the rabbis. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. (laughs) So you're answering questions with questions. It sounds like you've had rabbinic training. Maybe way back, another lifetime. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. (laughs) So your personal journey looking at that whole realm of alien abductions, do you accept that they're real? Do you not accept that they're real? Do you not know? Where do you stand? I, my feeling is that people are having real, real 
experiences. What they are, I don't know. Um, it's it's very naive of us to say that we're here alone in this universe. I mean, it's a big universe, and uh, naive to say that we haven't been visited. It's naive to say that uh, we are it, and that we are the pinnacle, the ultimate of society of the universe's effort at life. So it's quite possible that uh, we have been visited and we are still being visited. Does it worry you? No. No. I think it's amazing. Um, I think that if we were to know just how many races there were or how many, you know, how and why we're visited, I think we would be amazed. So with your shamanic work and also with what you just said, do you have a relationship with a creator per se? I do. Um, I was raised Christian. I was okay. raised in the Baptist tradition and um, left the church because it really didn't answer uh, questions that I had. Uh, queer is um, not that I, I'm anti-Christian. I still believe there's, there is a lot that we can learn, but I don't think the modern church uh, portrays what Christ originally um, intended. And uh, so I don't attend a particular church, but I still have a belief in a creator and uh, still feel that there is, you know, there's a whole spiritual realm that we have access to. That's great. Because usually by the time people know what you know and have been through what you've been through and are trained in what you're trained in, the multiple areas, mm -hmm. they don't always come to that place where they still accept that there is a creator, there's an intelligent creator. And once they are open to this alien realm mm -hmm. and this other realm, it seems like their relationship to the sacred changes and it somehow gets muted down. I think that's because of fear. Um, when the, the abduction researchers were first uh, interviewing people who'd had in interactions, you know, the abduction interactions. These were very fearful people, people who'd gone through some unknown and very scary experiences. And um, so there's been this mindset involved, which is that the the whole interaction, the abduction scenario is a very scary, fearful one. And I think in that respect, people who've been through that aspect of it with that mindset perhaps have turned their back on some of the more spiritual realms. I'm glad that you have the integration and I think that you can help a lot of people, not only in that area, but in all the other areas you're trained in. Mm -hmm. How is your training as a nurse, which I find also interesting that you're still qualified to do nursing if you want to do it. How is that helping you today and how have you been called upon to utilize that in life? Well, I'm not actually certified here in the States. I was trained in England. I'm a state registered nurse in England. And if I went back to England, it would it would be fairly easy to reestablish myself in the, the nursing profession. Uh, here in the States, it's been very helpful in that um, being a nurse, I've been able to manage my own health care and um, be aware of my own health rather than relying too much on the allopathic uh, method, uh, mindset. And um, every position, for example, when I went to work with the seniors, having been a nurse was a big plus 
because I had an insight into the aging process and the problems that come along very often with advanced age. And uh, it's been very helpful all, all through my life. Have you ever remote viewed crop circles? Um, I haven't. I've actually been in a crop circle when I was visiting back in England, the large one that occurred on the top of Milk Hill with the multiple intersecting circles, um, the, it was more like the fractals. Um, and that was pretty amazing. Um, didn't have any major insights or effects on me except just awe. Uh, so I've not been tasked. Nobody has really tasked me uh, to look at the crop circles. And to be quite honest, there's no, there are 24 hours in the day. <laughs> you know, I can't go remote view everything. Indeed. What do you think they are, just personally? What do you think they actually are? Um, I have two viewpoints, two um, thoughts about them. One is a very practical one that this is purely human uh, technology that somehow there's, and I don't know how it's done, you know, that this is something beamed down some template onto the field that creates the patterns, perhaps from a satellite. Um, That's one thing I've thought about. The other is that the, if they are made by ETs, that they are not meant for us. They're meant for each other. It's like, okay, we visited, this is a symbol we put in this field. We visited here. We're going off to Alpha Centauri now. (laughs) That's interesting. Kind of like the way an animal urinates to Uh leave its mark. That's a good analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I don't think them, I mean, they're beautiful. I've seen a lot of rune symbols in, uh, there are a lot of symbolic stuff in the um, crop circles. But I don't think they're meant for us. That's interesting. I just know I was supposed to ask you that question. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Angela? Just that the uh, remote viewing field is still alive and progressing, despite the the skeptics and scientific viewpoint. Um, There actually is an association. The um, I'm sure Paul and Lynn have talked about this. The International Remote Viewing Association that has a a conference every year in Green Valley, Nevada, just outside Las Vegas. And um, with interesting speakers, you'll get to meet all the, you know, the the highlighted people in remote viewing. And there are lots of people now out there in the remote viewing field, teaching, doing practical applications, um, helping others with remote viewing. So it's still a very valid field. And give us your website address as well, please. It's www.remoteviewingnv, that's NV for Nevada, remoteviewingnv.com. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you and have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Angela Smith, professional remote viewer. She provides shamanic services. She is an author And you can contact her in Nevada, in Boulder City. Thank you so much for being with us, Angela. You're welcome. And thank you for having me on the show. It's rainmaking time.